I, I wonder what you're anxious about today as you walk in. I wonder what you're afraid of. What are you grieving in your life right now? What, what isn't quite right? Perhaps it's a relationship or a work situation or something in your family or perhaps it's something just deep in your own soul that only you know. The reality is that, that we all have a lot of things that come to mind when we reflect on those questions. This is the truth that we live in a world of struggle and of challenge and of injustice, a world of defeat and failure and frustration, of pain and of sorrow and of death. Some of you are thinking, is this an Easter sermon? I want you just to, to have that as a backdrop for a moment, because today we, we celebrate another truth about the world, a truth that invades this world of sorrow. We heard in Luke 24, the grieving women, they were headed in sorrow and grief to, to the tomb to perform an act of, act of devotion to the dead body of their dear friend and teacher, a body that they had witnessed being placed in the tomb less than 48 hours earlier. And to their shock, as they arrive at the tomb, they find the stone that covered the entrance to the tomb rolled away. And then, as they were perplexed about this, two angels appear to interpret for them what they're experiencing, to tell them what's happened. And they say to these women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Death, that all-pervasive reality of our world of sorrow, couldn't hold this man Jesus. It couldn't hold him then, and it can never touch him again. The Christian faith celebrates today resurrection, not resuscitation. Lazarus, if you know the story from John chapter 11, when he was in the tomb and was called out of the grave by Jesus, Lazarus was resurrected or was, was res- resuscitated. Jesus brought him back to life, but Lazarus would die again. Jesus, on the other hand, was resurrected meaning that he received in this resurrection a new, immortal, imperishable body. Paul writes about this body in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the first fruits of God's promised new creation. So for these grieving women and for the world, suddenly everything is different because of what we celebrate today. Or is it? We're still anxious and afraid. We still grieve. We still mourn. And we still confront death all around us. Nine days ago, my brother-in-law died after a a two-and-a-half-year battle with cancer, leaving behind my sister and their five children. Less than 12 hours later, Mandy and I found out that her uncle, whom she and our three younger kids had just been with for a, a couple weeks earlier, died suddenly of what was probably a heart attack. On Thursday, I was talking with an older man who's heading back to the Midwest this weekend to be with his wife's family. I'd shared with him about our losses, but to be with his wife's family because his mother-in-law, his wife's mom, died at the ripe old age of 103. She'd passed away. And he said, even honestly, even at that age, at the end of a full life, death still feels so abrupt, so foreign, so invasive, so unwelcome. So what might the resurrection have to say to us? 
in the midst of a world of sorrow. Because I know that I'm not the only one who grieves in this room. I know many of your stories. And there are many stories in this room that I have no idea about, but I know because you live in a broken world like I do, that there's lots of room for sorrow and pain and tears and disappointment. And I want to say honestly to you that if you're in pain this morning and if you're grieving this morning in some way, the the resurrection of Jesus isn't necessarily going to take that grief and pain away. But it can wonderfully mysteriously and powerfully infuse every part of our world, every part of our experience with a kind of hope, a kind of joy, a a kind of light that is genuine and real. Simultaneous with, even, the pain and the sorrow that we feel. Tolkien begins the 19th chapter of the Silmarillion, in this way, in this chapter, tells the story of a love story between a mortal man, Baron, and an immortal elf maiden, Luthien, in the first ages of Middle-earth. Interestingly, Tolkien and his wife's graves have these names inscribed upon them next to one another at their cemetery in Oxford, outside of Oxford. This is the way he begins that chapter. Among the tales of sorrow and of ruin that came down to us from the darkness of those days, there are yet some in which amid weeping there is joy. And under the shadow of death, light that endures. The resurrection deeply informed Tolkien's imagination. And I believe had to deeply influence words like this coming off of his pen. For the resurrection is the enduring light in the midst of darkness. And it is the cause for joy among the weeping in our world. Let me try to give you a little picture of how this works for a moment. Imagine two bowls sitting next to each other, glass, clear bowls on your kitchen counter. One is filled with water and represents the present world of sorrow and death. The other, let's say it's filled with green food coloring, not diluted, just a full thing of green food coloring, represents the new creation of God that God promises in Scripture. That age when, as Revelation says, and this is God's great promise, and it's important to bring this promise into this day of Easter Sunday, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now imagine taking a drop of the green food coloring from the one bowl, just in a dropper, and bringing it over to the other bowl and just dropping one drop into the bowl filled with water. That drop spreads out into the entire bowl and gives it, even though it's small, a green tent. It's been infected, this new bowl, by a new life. And in a way, this is like our situation in the world. The resurrection of Jesus is a drop of new life that has infiltrated the old world, a drop that covers our lives as we trust in him, a drop that washes over and makes green, in my analogy, our own souls as we trust in him and yield to him. In the whole story that we've been telling all weekend long about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And one day that entire bowl of green food coloring will be poured in entirety into the bowl of water, overcoming it with life and power, and that is the day of the new creation. But for now, in this present moment, it's just one drop. A drop that spreads from heart to heart to heart 
to community to community through the power of Christ indwelling you and me who believe in him by faith. A drop that we're invited into the inside of and because of which we're guaranteed to enter into that fullness that will come one day. And that drop into this world suddenly makes all all of the difference in the midst of our grief and our sorrow and our tears. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus, the new body of the new age that Jesus Jesus inhabited as he was raised from the dead, is evidence that the new creation world that Revelation speaks about that deep in our hearts all of us long for and know that we were made for in some way. We know that the world of crying and suffering and pain and injustice is not the world as it was meant to be. Every heart in humanity bears witness to that fact, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the resurrection of Jesus is evidence that that new creation hope is going to be a reality. Jesus' resurrection is a deposit. It's a guarantee. It's the first fruits of the new creation. This world of tears that we inhabit is not all that there is. Something more has entered in, and it points to something more that is coming. Take you back to last year in our household. I have a a 10-year-old boy. Um, Many of you know him. And for months, he had been begging his mom and me for video games, as you do when you're 10 these days. Uh, I am not known in my family for being pro-technology with my children. Um, Maybe there's a double standard, but... Uh, I'm not. So I think he had convinced himself that this would never happen in this universe. (laughs) On Christmas morning this last December, we wrapped up four video game controllers and put them under the tree and passed them out to the kids and had them unwrap these at the same time. And I wish all of you could have been there to witness what we witnessed, which was pure 10-year-old ecstasy. His mouth dropped open. His corners of his mouth curled up. He started to jump up and down on the couch as if he couldn't believe what he was seeing before his very eyes. I've never seen him like this before or since. But it wasn't. uh, It wasn't because of the controller that was in his hand, was it? It was rather because of what that controller promised that downstairs there would be video games to play. Highly regulated video games, mind you. But he'd gotten a guarantee, and something else was coming. And this is a bit of how the resurrection of Jesus works in our own lives. Our joy today is like Jameson's on that Christmas morning, before he went downstairs with the controller in his hand. We've been given the victory. It's entered into the world. We possess it by faith. We hold on to it for our dear lives. And we know that what awaits us is the full glory of what this day begins to show us. That God will make everything new and wipe away death from the earth and wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, no more world of tears and world of sorrows. And today, we get to bring that gift out into the open, what is often under the surface, and anticipate the fullness of that life that is to come. It's not that our joy on this morning and as we were here last night, it's not that our joy is a denial of the pain and the tears that we're walking through right now. They're very real and very present, even in a moment like this. 
But because the world in which we experience those realities is a world infused by the resurrection power of God in Christ, by the blessing of God, we're able to carry joy amidst the weeping and to bear witness to the light under the shadow of death. Obviously, the clouds that settle in on your life and my life tempt us to deny this again and again. They tempt us to say that, no, it's just too good. It's just wishful thinking. Everything in my experience seems to deny the beauty and the wonder and the power of this moment. And this is where I want to end. But God has spoken. I want to go back to Luke 24. And God has acted... When the women come, into the, come to the tomb and they find the stone rolled away, it's interesting that the two men who are in this bright clothing that we take to be angels, they said to, to them, after they said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Which was honestly a little bit of a gentle rebuke. He is not here, he is risen. And then they say, remember, this is a central theme in Luke, and especially in Luke 24, remember, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then Luke's next comment in verse 8 is this, and they remembered his words. Your only hope in life and death and my only hope in life and death is that the power of God's word will remain true. Scripture is full of a witness to this. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, Isaiah says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of our God will stand forever. Last night in Isaiah 55, we heard about this word that goes out from his mouth that will not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here's an interesting insight. What is the beginning of the story? Genesis 1. What happens first? God speaks. He speaks. That's the first action. God says, let there be light. And what happens next? The light comes into existence. The word of God is that which creates. The word of God, when spoken, cannot be revoked. The word of God is that which is the anchor. It is the basis of all reality. The word of God calls into being. The word of God is always effective, Isaiah says. It will accomplish that for which its purpose. Jesus spoke. His disciples didn't understand. Twice in Luke 9, once in Luke 18, Jesus told them, I'm going to suffer and die, and then I'm going to rise. But they couldn't understand. But the word of God had spoken, and the word proved true. Now, let me bring us to the present to finish. We're in a world of tears and a world of sorrow. We all experience it. We all feel it. What has God said? Yes, the resurrection is evidence and proof, and we, we hold fast to it. But even in the midst of that, 2,000 years on, after all kinds of trial and sorrow, and by the way, trial and sorrow that didn't start yesterday. Stephen was martyred in Acts 7. 
James was killed in Acts 12. This was going on in the earliest church, but over 2,000 years, I would suggest that we begin to get weary. We begin to wonder, is God really going to come back? Is God really going to make this whole thing new? And like those angels said to the women that morning, I want to say to you this Easter morning, remember what he has said. I am coming back. I hold the keys to death in Hades. I will make all things new. Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then what? Then you also will appear with him in glory. The power of God has infused this world of tears. The word of God spoke to this reality first. And that word remains our roots and foundation and security and hope. God has done it. God has promised that he will finish it. And we can celebrate his victory from long ago being worked out in our lives today that will be consummated and completed on that great and final day when the tears will be gone. And life, life that breaks into this moment together, but life in all of its flourishing and abundance will be ours. And we'll be like a 10-year-old boy jumping up and down with our mouth wide open. Let's pray.